Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this edition of Live from Roswell with Guy Malone. One problem, of course, this is not Guy Malone. This is your guest host tonight, Tom Horn, filling in for the one and only guy who's off on a bit of a traveling spree, but he's going to be back in a week from now to continue his weekly foyer into the weird and unexplained. Now, this evening, we're going to be talking to one of my absolute favorite people, Dr. Lynn Marzulli, L.A. Marzulli, who most of you probably already know is the best-selling author of the Nephilim Trilogy books. And these are the series of books that, well, frankly, uh, set the bar for the rest of us on how to write great fiction, Lynn, while at the same time uh, taking real world, even crypto phenomenon and putting it within a storyline that uh, not only challenges the establishment or party line, but that sometimes causes us to marvel at the incredibly complex world that we live in and really how little about it we sometimes understand. Of course, tonight we're going to be talking to Lynn about his new nonfiction book, Politics, Prophecy, and the Supernatural. And I wanted Lynn to be on the show with me uh, tonight for a couple of reasons, because he and his book can also help answer a question that was asked the last time that I was on with Guy Malone, uh, when a listener asked the question, do I believe that there is a Stargate in Iraq, Babylon, and is that the real reason why the United States military went in there? That question came in at the close of the last show when I was on with Guy, and Guy asked if we could start uh, this show tonight with that question. So here we are tonight, and I'm joined by this man who actually earned an honorary doctorate for his work on beings uh, that I believe are connected to the ancient Babylonian Stargate, the Nephilim. But this new nonfiction book, Politics, Prophecy, and the Supernatural, connects some additional dots as well that other authors have overlooked. And besides all of that, Lynn uh, possesses an in-depth knowledge of UFOs and supernatural phenomena. So he's a wonderful guest for the Live from Roswell show. Now, Lynn, uh, and by the way, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Great intro. <laughs> I hope I live up to it. <laughs> oh, well, I trust that you and Peg and the girls are doing great. Yeah, they are. Uh, tell Peg that Nita and I say hello. Okay, I certainly shall. Okay, so with that, <laughs> with, with that said, you know, this, this opening question, is there a Stargate in Babylon, Iraq, and is that why the United States rushed in there? Uh, it's a question that could easily dominate the entire two hours tonight, mm -hmm. and I want to make sure that we talk about some of the very important issues that you've raised in your book that are related to this subject anyway. So I want to take just a few minutes, and I want to try to put this question forward um, as quickly as I can, but I want to raise some important issues for people um, to think about. And I want you also, of course, to feel free to leap in there at any moment if you want to, and let's make this a dialogue uh, but first of all, I want, I want people to think about how painfully obvious it is to Americans now that we never did have good influence going into Iraq concerning weapons of mass destruction. Uh, so that couldn't have been the reason we went in. Do you agree? Yeah, pretty much with that. Um, and, and, of course, we haven't really found anything. The only, the, uh, being somewhat of a conspiratologist and, and knowing the, the wells of Saddam, I honestly believe he whisked them out and... and, and probably through Syria, and they're hidden up in the Bekaa Valley in the hands of the Syrians. That's what, you know, that's a scenario I'd like to believe, but, you know, who knows? Okay. Well, uh, also, you know, there have been people who said that we went there to take control of oil, uh, which could be true, but I, I, I'm curious I don't about see that either. why right. we're getting less of it now than we did before. The there you go. Right. 
Other people say we went there to speed democracy, but I don't think any student of American history really believes that uh, you do that with the tip of a cannon barrel. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also <laughs> you also note how. Uh, you know, infrastructure. Remember when we said we're going in and we're going to make sure this infrastructure is rebuilt as quickly as possible? And here, years later, much of it's left uh, unprotected. It's in disrepair. And yet, in terms of what we really invested in, there were widespread reports, some of which were confirmed later on, that one of the very first things that we did do when we went into Iraq was we went straight to the museums, we went to Saddam's mansions. And we also went to the site uh, that is thought to be the ancient site of the Tower of Babel, mm-hmm. and we set up a military presence there right away and, and, and started recovering uh, certain artifacts. So it seems that the official line that's, of course, always changing, but never certifying any real cause about why we went there, uh, would imply to more than just conspiratologists that we went into Iraq for reasons other than what was stated at the outset. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one of the more plausible arguments that I've uh, heard that is not an esoteric argument, and if this isn't the correct answer, I believe it's at least partially correct, Lynn, and I, I want to talk about this a little bit more later, but I'll mention it now, Sure. about why we went into Iraq, uh, has to do with the fact that we may have went there in order to create a strategic military presence in the Middle East. And this is a a pretty solid theory that comes out of some of our war colleges that says, you know, over the last couple of decades, we've recognized that there is, there is a, first of all, there's a growing anti-Americanism among some uh, with the jihad. But but I think even more uh, frightening to some American intelligence was this growing friendliness among who we think of as Gog Magog, Russia, uh, and uh, uh, China and also Russia perhaps funding some of Iran's yeah. uh, intrusion into mm-hmm. Iraq, and that some of our war college experts were telling us, look, it's inevitable. There is going to be a point in time, and probably in the near future, where America's superpower status could be challenged, and, and, and we don't have a, a really good, solid military base in the Middle East from which we could stage a possible Armageddon, and therefore, it makes a great deal of sense, even if you have to concoct a reason to invade one of these countries, which now we, you know, we're there in Iraq and we're building the world's largest, uh, I mean, yeah, the United States' largest embassy in Iraq. So a lot of that, to me, could be in addition to other reasons why we went there. But mm-hmm. I think there's, I think there's something to that. And when we get to politics, prophecy, and the supernatural, we'll kind of revisit some of why we're in Iraq, maybe on that basis. Sure. But, but, and this is. I want to get to quickly as I can to the question that was asked. And and this goes to the fact that maybe, just maybe, we went into Iraq, for as difficult as it is to believe, to actually take control of something that was found there. Now remember, Saddam Hussein considered himself the resurrected Nebuchadnezzar. You and I talked about that not right. ago. He spent about a half billion dollars rebuilding Babylon and doing uh, archaeological digs, the recovery of artifacts, mm-hmm. some of which the general public still doesn't know anything about. Um, also keep in mind that this rebuilding of Babylon is very prophetic to uh, Christians and others who see the reconstruction of Babylon as indicative of the end times prophecies. And on the Christian side, of course, they tie that into Isaiah chapter 13, a prophecy about the end times destruction of Babylon and that it couldn't be destroyed unless it was rebuilt. That's right, and also the book of Revelation, too. The book of Revelation, and of course some people then wonder, is that actually why the United States went into Iraq 
this uh, and, and, and are there building this giant embassy and all that because this administration, which many people believe, see itself as agenters of prophecy, and of course the administration sent plenty of signals to substantiate that, that opinion, that they are there trying to resurrect Babylon as the great center from which the known world uh, could then be manipulated or attracted. In fact, it was even a New York Times article recently that discussed how Iraq, the United States, and the United Nations are now looking at a major plan to restore Babylon and to turn it into a global cultural center. I mean, how fantastic can that be? And anybody that wants to go to Google or Yahoo could 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 uh, Google that and find uh, that um, New York Times story. But there's a there's another thing on this very point that I had started talking about actually two years ago and then again about a year and a half ago and then a lot last year on the Q-Files and Coast to Coast and some other shows. And it had to do with what I had viewed as messages in the president's inaugural speeches. And I don't want to go into all that and I want to get past this question. So let me just say that people who go back and read those inaugural speeches, the first inaugural speech, you'll find how Bush twice referred to the angel in the whirlwind who directs the storm. And people said that, and they were right, but only to a really superficial extent, that that was from a, that he was quoting from a line from Joseph Addison's 1705 point, the campaign, which was quoted in a letter from John Page, who had written to Thomas Jefferson after the Declaration of Independence was signed, and said, do you not think that an angel rides in the whirlwind and directs the storm? And don't forget that both of those men at that time were illuminatists, and, and that that language was very important then and now to, to the Illuminati and Masonic beliefs. And, and uh, at some other point, we spend maybe a whole show explaining why. Then in his second <laughs> inaugural, Bush spoke of having lit a fire in the minds of men. Remember that? Mm -hmm. And that was a line from Dostoevsky's novel, The Possessed. And I had actually pointed to both of those inaugural references as being curious, and not the least of which reason is because of the elements of wind and fire, which were very important elements of the ancient forms of dualism that were directly connected to Iran and Iraq and Zoroastrianism, and also the modern name for the Illuminati, Moriah Conquering Wind. Mm. Now, I've done entire shows on talking about how, how brazen this language was, but the bottom line is that it ultimately brings us to Metatron, who in the Kabbalah is the angel in the whirlwind. And, and, and people absolutely must not uh, underestimate the value of that language and its connection to Babylon and even to a possible Babylonian Stargate and its connection to the end times prophecies, to what ancient texts, including the Bible, say about the angel in the whirlwind and its connection specifically to Iraq and Babylon hmm. and to the king of Babylon, the mystical king of Babylon, and the kings of the nations falling down before the king of Babylon. And how that at a time when the angel in the whirlwind brings death and destruction to Iraq and Babylon in the end times, that a mystical or physical gate is going to open, and the offspring of the Watchers and Nephilim are going to come through at a time when these occult powers are influencing global government. I'm not making this up. There's a very mm -hmm. clear trail for this mm -hmm. in the scripture. And so uh, don't forget that it was in his inaugural address in 2001 that Bush actually faced the obelisk known as the Washington Monument. Mm -hmm. And he made that cryptic statement that signaled that the forces of the winds were going to be unleashed. This, this is the death and conquering winds, by the way, folks, in the Bible, the winds of Moriah. Moriah is the name of the whirlwind. Remember that old song? 
Mm -hmm. uh, the, the whirlwind of death. That's why uh, some scholars say that Moriah is potentially the fourth horse of the apocalypse, because Moriah was the very wind of death that accompanied war and death in, in, the, in the Old Testament. It was, that's why Isaiah, that's why it's referred to in this scene where, uh, where Abraham is going to kill his son. And it was spoken of, by the way, and this, this land is really important, and you may have written about this, it's in the book of Jeremiah 25:32, when the prophet is actually prophesying about Babylon, that he says this, uh, 25:32, he says, "Evil shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind." That is Moriah, hmm. the angel in the whirlwind. A great whirlwind shall be raised up from the coasts of the earth. End quote. I mean, this couldn't be Un a, unbelievable. A more direct and comprehensible reference from a president who took us to Iraq, Babylon, and started this war at a time when you have so much other prophetic fulfillment. Okay, but, but and, and here's something I'll talk about another time. This whole dark wind uh, is written about it, 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 by ancient pagans, occultists, and Hebrew folklore. It's in the Kabbalah. It's the same spiritual forces. This dark wind in the Kabbalah, the, the Mariah, is also known as Lil or Lilith. Right the demoness who takes mm -hmm. the form of an owl and who is still worshipped in, in places today. This Lila's name, by the way, literally translates as grove. And, you know, oh, you where do grove. Pres presidents and groves and owls, you know. That's it. <laughs> where, where, where else do you find, you know, the Illuminati Mariah conquering wind gathering in a grove before a giant owl where the illuminated ones, the bohos, the bohemians, including... Mm -hmm. All of the pre all of the U.S. presidents, George W. Bush, his daddy, Dick Cheney, the rest of the of the gang, uh, gather in their grove every year beneath the lil, the uh, the giant horned status mm -hmm. that at one time formed the highest competition to Yahweh, her and her main uh, male equal Baal, uh, who is also known as Molech, and that's why Alex Jones believes that Molech is actually the deity that's being worshipped by the Bohemian Grovesmen as they conduct this ritual that's called the cremation of care, which, by the way, is directly connected to the mystical Mariah wind of death, including the parroting of the sacrifice of the child, uh, the symbolic sacrifice of Abraham's son Isaac beneath the angel in the whirlwind. Hmm. Uh, and so people can go and read about that, the crema cremation of care. And they say that you know, the cremation of care uh, represents uh, burning up our cares and burdens but you'll find that there's significant connection there. Um, I, 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 I'm going to have to get past this point, but I'll, I'll, I'll spend a couple hours on this uh, some point. Uh, let me just jump in with a little sidebar. It's interesting, in Kennedy's inaugural address, he talks about secret societies and things done that, that shouldn't be done in secret. And I believe he's referring to the Illuminati and, and the Masons in there. I mean, he, he goes after it, and you can actually get a transcript or go, you know, Google it up on YouTube and, and check it out. But he, he discusses this whole secret society. He doesn't mention it by name because obviously he can't. But it's interesting, and of course, you know, he's assassinated a few years later, which, you know, begs the question who, and we've all been in, in and around that whole conspiracy deal. But, um, you know, Tom, what, what you're saying, I mean, I, I completely concur with on, on, on much of it. I have a different, slightly viewpoint to it. Um, which I, I, I'm working on an article actually called The Luciferian Dialectic. I've talked to you a little bit about that. But um, the strings that are being, whether, whether Bush is involved or he's a puppet, it, it makes no difference because, in my opinion, there's, there are forces here at work that go, that go beyond just mere human beings and governments. And that's why it's a Luciferian dialectic. It's being manipulated. And if, if we see what I believe is going to happen um, in Iraq, 
uh, I think they will, they will bring in a strong man, more than likely the King of Jordan. We can get into that a little later if, if you know if you want to touch into that. But if if that happens and Babylon is then set up as the new capital of Iraq, I believe we have witnessed literally a supernatural Luciferian dialectic manifested on the planet. Well, and so, Lynn, to, 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 for me to I want to I want to talk to you about what you're talking about right now. Okay. I want to get past this point. I don't want <laughs> I don't want the I don't want the person who called in and said, "Do you believe there's a stargate in Babylon?" to get mad at me because I got on a, ram, a ramble. You know, being an old preacher is a hard thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Derek Derek Gilbert. He says about me, wind him up and let him go. You know, it's a, it's a real problem. It's Lucifer and dialectic. I mean, think of all the crowd mesmerizing words and ritual magic uh, enhancement that has been being pervade over the American public for the last six, seven years. And I'm not taking a shot at somebody. I'm saying that sometimes people aren't even aware of what they're doing or how they're being used. But when you declare war, war on Babylon, the home of what could potentially have been the only place recognized in the Bible as possessing a stargate, and you use this coded language, for instance, shock and awe, which is a right. play on the Hebrew shock and awe. The which, is in, which is in that same passage of Jeremiah, by the way. Right. Yeah. And, and you go in dropping a new so-called mother of all bombs, which is the acronym Moab on the heads of the Iraqis, with Moab, oh, of course, being the ancient sworn enemy of Israel. It's very and deliberate, isn't it? I mean, it really is. Whatever, someone knows what they're doing. It's very deliberate. But so, but to keep on to, to to finish this question about a Babylonian stargate, let me let me turn this now where we really want to go uh, on the first of all to pick up your word this Luciferian occult nature of language which uh, was either used knowingly or unknowingly by the nation's leaders in order to frame our case for going into Iraq, which might mean they're being manipulated by those who want a gateway to be open. Mm -hmm. The very same angel of Bush's speech is in the apocryphal book of Enoch. It's the knower, the revealer of secrets. To the Illuminati, it's the Moriah conquering winds, also known as Metatron and the Kabbalah, but also known as the brother of Ophan, which in Hebrew is the wheel. The very wheel in the middle of the wheel, according to ancient sages, the literal chariot of God, connected to ufology and official disclosure, and in terms of history, even connected to Roswell, where where we are broadcasting this program from tonight. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, this Metatron, who's worshipped by the Illuminati as the keeper and giver of secrets, has a female equivalent who is key to why I think we went into Iraq. Guess who the female equivalent is? shock and awe. Wow. The president's own title for our invasion of Babylon. And, and I will say that it is not only convincingly occultic, uh, but I understand if, if people inside the administration understand all this language, I understand why they would want Metatron and shock and awe on their side, because if you're going to disturb the grave of Nimrod, who built the Tower of Babel, the, the ancient home of the Babili, the, the gate of the Eli, the illumined ones, the gate, the gate of God in the Bible, this huge tower called in the Sumerian uh, Edmanaki, the house of the foundation of heaven and earth, a literal passageway from heaven to earth, then all of this magic language makes sense. Where, you know, and think about what would, what would the mathematical probabilities of all of this be? We're in Babylon. Even under official language, according to the invitation of Metatron, and Shachanah, and Moriah, and Lilith, and Molech, and the powers of the air, and the angel in the whirlwind, 
referred to twice in the speech because the Lord speaks once, yea, twice. There's a lot of reasons behind all the, the reason why things were done the way we're done. And it led me to believe that at least on an occultic level, we were there looking for, maybe found, the Araman Gate, the Gate of Ely, the portal between the foundations of heaven and earth. I mean, ask yourself, isn't it unusual that we had a military presence on the ground within hours of our invasion who took up a presence on the very site identified as the one location, the one place, biblically speaking, where you might find a gateway named as such connected to ancient prophecy and the return of the watchers. So I have reasons to believe, in order to answer this question and move on, I have reasons to believe that not only is it possible that we found a gateway there, but that maybe it was even prophesied, and it's going to be very important in the very near future. So what do you think, Lynn? Well, I, I concur with, with much of what you said. Um, I, I think it's, it's, it's interesting that, that and, and I'll just draw a parallel to Hitler, when, when Hitler um, went into Habsburg when it, um, in Austria, at the beginning, at the beginning salvos of World War II, basically what he did, the first thing he did is he went to the museum and took what many call is a cultic uh, emblem, commonly known as the Spear of Destiny, the Spear of Longinus. That spear allegedly, supposedly, pierced the side of Christ. Since, since then, of course, it's been proven that, well, the spear is more like a, um, maybe a thousand years old, twelve hundred years old, but there might be one nail in the spear itself that, that seems to carbon date later. But all that, the bottom line is Hitler believed in it. Hitler actually believed in this lance, the Spear of Destiny, the lance of Longinus. He believed that whoever possessed it would then control the destiny of the world. What's interesting, according to my studies and my research, is when, um, when right the same day Hitler committed suicide, why that was happening, within hours afterwards, Patton discovered the secret tunnel. And in, at the end of the secret tunnel is where the lance was actually being kept. The United States then held possession of it for a while and then returned it where it is now in Habsburg. So it's interesting that, like, talismans, things like this, um, to occult adepts, anyway, are very, very important. Hitler, I believe, was an occult adept, as many of the hierarchy of the Nazis were, and so they went after this stuff. And what, what has always amazed me about the invasion in Iraq is, is right from the beginning, it's like we're in Afghanistan and we're doing this whole thing, which seems to make sense, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, now that that's done, we're going to go here. And I never, I was, you know, I, I supported it to a degree, it seemed like the right thing to do. I mean, Saddam was certainly a butcher. I actually wrote a paper on the thing, why there will be no war in Iraq. And what I believed in is, of course, all this is now coming out, that, that um, Saddam was offered amnesty in, in, certain, in certain Arab countries, uh, trying to cut a deal to, you know, basically, basically get, out, get out with billions of dollars or whatever, and there would be no war. But it seemed like um, that wasn't going to come down, and Saddam didn't do it, and, of course, the rest is history. We know where we're at. What I do find incredibly interesting is that nothing about Babylon is ever mentioned. Nothing. It's like even, even when they advanced, when they first got boots on the ground and they landed in Iraq. I mean, surely it, it's, it's, a, it's a, an archaeological site that we can at least um, agree of its historical and archaeological importance, and yet this is completely overlooked, and it's all about Baghdad and you know, the Sunni Triangle and all these other outlying provinces. And even if you Google it today, you can get some pictures of of um, Marines in the area, but it's like the whole, you never, you never hear word one in the press, no one ever talks about it. And as you pointed out, the, uh, apparently uh, objects of art, talismans, I mean, who knows what was raided from the museum and who knows what was taken. It certainly plays into what I believe 
is a Luciferian dialectic, which ties into uh, powers that were established 60 years ago that were shifted. And another interesting thing, without getting too much on a, on a goose chase here or, or a sidebar, is, is that the, the, the principality, which is, had been over that region, i.e. the Prince of Persia, even though Persia is Iran, it used to extend to that whole area when Daniel was writing right. about that. He's in, he's in Babylon. So the Prince of Persia is, is withstanding the angel for 21 days. The backstory is Daniel's praying. The angel takes 21 days to get there, and the angel shows up and says, hey, I have to fight the Prince of Persia before I got here, which gives us a, a glimpse, at least an insight into the heavenlies, uh, this warfare which is continuing. Well, that Prince of Persia has never been deposed. I mean, that, that same spirit that was in, in control, you know, 2,500 years ago or what have you, is still in control today. And that's why I think you get things like Abu Ghraib, which are so just weird. I mean, the photographs from Abu Ghraib are just bizarre. They're weird. There's a controlling spirit over the area, and, and you send people who have no idea what they're into into an, an area like that, and, and things are going to start manifesting. But getting back into what I believe is happening is I believe what we're looking at is a Luciferian dialectic. And a dialectic just simply means that you set up a, a thesis followed by an antithesis followed by a synthesis, which would mean like point, counterpoint, and then you kind of get the conclusion at the end. And briefly put, it's interesting that Iraq, the present kingdoms of Iraq, Syria, Jordan, and of course Israel, were once part of the Ottoman Empire. After World War I, the Ottoman Empire was dismantled by the Brits, who then created these four modern states. Israel at the time was called Palestine, but later became Israel, of course, in 1948. Bottom line is this, the Hashemite kingdom was set up originally in Iraq. Hashem is the uncle of Mohammed. The Hashemites are direct descendants from Mohammed. They traced their lineage back to the time of Mohammed 1,300 years ago. What's interesting is he holds, the present king of Jordan is also a Hashemite king, but I'm, I'm kind of leaping a little bit ahead of the story, but the Hashemites hold great sway in, in the Muslim world because of their direct descent from the Prophet. Um, they set up a government in Iraq, and that government was then, there was a coup which deposed the government, overthrew the government, and the Hashemite kingdom, which had ruled Iraq for a number of years with the aegis of, of Great Britain over them, of course, fled to Jordan, where they established which is now the Jordanian kingdom, which is, again, a Hashemite kingdom. And the successor is Abdullah II. What is interesting is, is after, right immediately after the, the invasion of Iraq, and uh, I actually wrote a paper about this before the invasion. I really thought this was going to happen, and of course it didn't, so I was wrong. Maybe wrong again here. But what's interesting is, after the invasion, the king of Jordan went on the record saying that he would hope that the Iraqi people would consider a constitutional monarchy. It didn't get much legs. It didn't go further than that. Recently, in the last year, there's been two or three articles popping up, things from our State Department, again from the King of Jordan, um, and, and others discussing this partitioning Iraq and bringing in the King of Jordan and setting up some sort of a constitutional monarchy. Right. But it hasn't gotten a whole lot of legs yet. Here's the deal. If he walked in as a strong man, he would be able to, because he, the respect he... he um, the respect he engenders in the Muslim world, he'd be able to create a state and cease, I believe, the sectarian violence between Sunni and Shia. So that's point number one. Point number two, I don't believe he would create his capital in Baghdad. No, I think he'd move it to, guess where, Babylon. Point number four... Now, now, now Lynn, go ahead. Um, I don't want to skip part, point number four. Do you write about this stuff in your new book, Politics, Prophecy, and the... Well, I, I actually don't, but here's the deal. If you, if you, if you buy the book... Um, once this is published, we're, sent, we're sending them out as a, as a freebie um, in the newsletter. 
It's actually going to be in my next newsletter. All right. This, um, and you know, what and I'm you talking actually about. have like a, 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 what would you call it, a prophecy newsletter? In it's a prophecy newsletter that goes out monthly. It's a buck fifty a month, and you know People we do all sorts of stories. And, yeah, it, it's on the website. Now, uh, how how do people get a copy of your book if they want it? They just go hop to the website. It's a uh, spiral of life, spiral like a spiral staircase, spiraloflife.com, and uh, they can just order it right there. It's right now, Tom. It's number two in the prophecy section on Amazon today. Yeah, well, so and, and it has been since your book come out, right? Yeah, it's been, it's been in the top, top ten pretty much. Yeah. Uh, all right. <clears throat> I didn't mean to interrupt you. I, That's I just, all right. I, I want people to know that. Uh, a great deal of what you're talking about right now, some of it will be and some of it isn't. You've written four or five books. you also got a prophecy newsletter. Uh, they need to visit your website, Spiral of Life. And the, for the people that are actually uh, over there on the uh, Live from Roswell website, they put up a, a link there at the top of the page, several places they can click on, go right to the Spiral right. of Life. And that, that first ad they click on is going to show them an advertisement for the prophecy uh, politics and supernatural book down in the right hand corner there's a little link they can click mm -hmm. and actually go to your website get more information on your other books so, all right so uh, so pick up now point number four yeah point number four is um, uh, now that the king of Jordan has set up a constitutional monarchy in Iraq and and ceased the sectarian violence and basically brought peace to the region he then solves the Middle East conundrum which has been going on since Israel became a state in 48 that of course is the Palestinian homeland the Palestinians uh, having their own homeland, which is interesting, is the northern part of Jordan is populated. Approximately 75% of the population is Palestinian. So, in one way, the Palestinians already have their homeland, and that's in that's in Jordan, the northern part of Jordan. The, the King of Jordan could annex that part. In other words, turn it over to the Palestinians, and the Palestinians could create their own their own homeland, if if you please, uh, in the northern part of Jordan. They could call it then Palestine. So he would he would be able to solve this conundrum, which has been going on for you know generations, literally. Which is, and every president, every U.S. president who tries to get in the middle of it, it just gets egg all over their face. It's not going to get solved, and we we can see that land for peace isn't going to work, and the Palestinians need some place. So if he does this, and of course, again, because he's a Hashem, uncle of Mohammed, a descendant from Mohammed, the Hashemite king, he he holds great sway in the. Muslim world, and, and he rides in, which is interestingly enough, on a white horse. He comes in as a peacemaker, not only in Iraq, but by solving the, the greatest question of our time, really the Israeli-Palestinian uh, tension that's been going on for decades. Now, here's the other point that if he does, and if he does this one, then he can be no other than the Antichrist. Well, and of this, course, is, this is, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm, I'm thinking... What you're describing is a situation uh, upon which literally the Antichrist could correct could roll in. That's exactly it. And of course, um, what, what what most people don't know is that the, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is controlled by the WAF, W-A-Q-F. The WAF is all Muslim. The Dome of the Rock, the third sect, or I think it's the third holiest site in, uh, in in Islam, is on that Temple Mount. It was at one time a, uh, a cathedral, <laughs> and now it's a mosque. But before all that, the Jews had the had both temples that were on it. The first temple, and of course, after the Babylonian, there's that word again, the Babylonian invasion, which destroyed the temple, they rebuilt the second temple, and that temple is the one that Jesus walked in and prophesied, saying, and one stone will be uh, left upon another, and of course, that's true. They're not even sure where the temple existed. Some uh, rabbinical scholars believe that it's not where the Dome of the Rock was, that it's actually in, in another location. So this could fulfill the prophecy of... Ezekiel talking about the outer court being defiled 
from the, uh, a, a, a Jewish perspective by building a wall between them. But here's the rub. The, the king of Jordan, the Hashemite king, King Abdullah, has literally control of the Temple Mount. The walks, W-A-Q-F, will call him if anything goes on in the Temple Mount. The king of Jordan is the first to know about it. Case in point, there was a bulge in the wall in one of the walls a couple of years ago. Now, who do they call? They don't call the Israelis, and the Palestinians don't do it. They don't call anybody else. They call the King of Jordan. The Jordanians show up with a team of archaeologists, and they repair the wall. So he actually has control of the Temple Mount. He is the only guy in the Muslim world who could literally cut a deal with the Israelis and allow the Israelis to build the Temple on the Temple Mount. And if he does that, guess who he is? And if he does all four points, and I realize it's a stretch, we have witnessed a Luciferian dialectic. This whole thing has been manipulated, and the end goal, of course, is the rise of the Antichrist. Well, of course, you know, there's a lot of people listening to live from Roswell uh, who would not um, agree with some of what you or me, either one, would say about, uh, you know, from a, from a biblical worldview. There are uh, quite a few people who listen to this show that are very devout listeners that you know, that may not be Christians, they may not have any religious persuasion whatsoever. But I think the thing is that most people have a sense right now, from whatever worldview they might have, that something is happening mm-hmm. in the world. And, and, and it isn't just biblical texts. I mean, there's, there's dozens and dozens of ancient texts, everything from the Mayan calendar to so many other things that are winding down right now, and that seem to be um, evidence, if you will that we are living in a period of time where people need to pay attention to these ancient texts because these prophets evidently knew something, and, they, and it's a, they're astonishingly accurate in much of what they have to say. And the Middle East, and in particular Iraq, Iran, and Babylon, and I appreciate what you said a minute ago about <coughs> Iraq and Iran and, and, and the Prince of Persia mm-hmm. at the time that Daniel made those prophecies, that, that empire uh, contained geography that now is separately Iraq and Iran. I remember I wrote an article one time in which I referred to the Prince of Persia and I put Iraq slash Iran and I received some email from some irate person saying, you ding dong, you don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> and uh, they evidently had not done their, their homework that at the time that prophecy was made. They were, they were one. They, yeah, that yeah. much of what is geographically now known as Iraq and Iran was one empire. That's now, correct. Now, Lynn, <clears throat> also, you know, some people might not know this. You were actually one of the first guys. I, I know this. I know this from experience because I, I got your very first book when it came out, and I read it. I didn't even know you at that time. Uh, but you were one of the very first guys to speculate, and you did this before we went into Iraq, mm-hmm. that someday something related to those who come through Stargates, the Nephilim, if you will, specifically the Nephilim as it relates to the ancient Middle East, could be found in the ancient Middle East. You talked, you speculated about this in your very first book. You want to tell us about that? I'd love to. Sure. There was a, there was a whole scene, uh, which this is complete fiction. Complete fiction. But I honestly, I honestly believe that they will eventually find something like it, and uh, when they do, you know, ho- hopefully they'll let the rest of the world know about it. Or have. But we know from from the biblical text that there were giants in the land. We know that. We also know from Josephus that these giants were terrible to look at. Their countenances were, were just alarming and, and scared. You know, they're just horrible to look at. I mean, terrifying. We also know that some of these guys could have been at this incursion anyway, and I won't get into that, but, but at this particular manifestation in the time of Josephus, that the, 
that these skeletons may have been 12 to 15 feet tall. They were big guys, all right? We also know from Josephus that the skeletons were openly on display in the streets of Jerusalem upon Josephus' writing, which means that Yeshua or Jesus walking around could have commented on them or seen them. Of course, he really doesn't, but in my opinion, I think he saw them. And that's, you know, that's, that's just a personal opinion. It has nothing to do with what I believe or whatever, or, or scripture, I should say, or, or canon. But I do believe that Jesus may have seen them, especially with Josephus telling us that the skeletons of the Nephilim were openly on display in Jerusalem at the time of his writing. How so we know that they're there. Maybe he, maybe he was looking upon these when he says, as it was. I was just thinking the same thing. <laughs> Great minds think alike, just joking. But I was thinking exactly the same thing. If it wasn't the days of Noah, so it will be when the Son of Man returns. I mean, why not? Why couldn't he have been sitting there looking at the skeletons? I mean, if we only knew that, it would it would give that, that sentence such such great import. It would, be, it would be off the charts. If we knew where he was actually standing when he said that, that's, a, that's an incredible point. But what if, and here's the what if, and in and, and the Nephilim series, one of the first things that they do is they actually find the very ancient sarcophagus with the three words used, some of the words anyway, to describe the Nephilim, Anakim, Raphaim, Nephilim, all meaning pretty much the same thing, that these are, are demonic hybrids. Uh, what I mean by that specifically is the offspring of fallen angels and the women of Earth creating the Nephilim. And, and modern-day archaeologists discover a sarcophagus underneath the existing Temple Mount, and they exhume the bones and they test the bones and they find out that there's there's some different DNA that just isn't quite human in there. I think eventually uh, some of this is going to come out. Somebody somewhere is going to find this thing, or there'll be a link, or it's, it's got to come up at some point. Now, in your, in your new book, Politics, Prophecy, and the Supernatural, which is not fictional, um, you also see this um, esoteric or supernatural mm -hmm. uh, connection between current Middle East troubles and supernaturalism. In fact, both your Nephilim trilogy and your new book, Politics, Prophecy, and the Supernatural, talk about supernatural events that happened in the ancient world. Why, why do you think these things that happened in the ancient world are important for us today? Well, I, I, there's a quote that I keep using and referring to the entire book all through it. It's, um, it, it, the quote kind of sets up the whole um, feel of the book, so to speak, and it's one that I refer to um, continually, and that is this. The present political landscape is in direct correlation to supernatural events that happened, in some cases, millennia ago. And I'll say it one more time. The present political landscape is in direct correlation to supernatural events that happened, in some cases, millennia ago. And, of course, what I mean by that is simply this, that in America, we'll start here because it's, it's something that we all can instantly relate to. We celebrate Christmas. It's a national holiday. You can believe in it or not believe in it. It makes no difference. It's a supernatural event that we are celebrating, simply this, that this God-man, Yeshua, Jesus, somehow incarnated in, in a virgin, or through a virgin, 2,000 years ago. And then three months later, or four months later, depending on when it falls, in that year we celebrate his resurrection. In other words, the man was completely, definitely killed, you know, on the cross, killed on the cross, buried, and three days later he rises from the dead. Two incredible supernatural events. And, of course, in the West, this has shaped our body politic. I mean, that's why we have In God We Trust. That's why we have, you know, tens of thousands of churches throughout the country with crosses uh, on the top of them, because we believe in this particular mythos. This is our worldview. Many people in this country, according to my research, over 85% claim some sort of Christian belief. Right. Um, 
So it, it's way up there. And, of course, I realize there are people who don't, who don't believe in it. That's fine. But for the sake of the argument, you must, you must at least agree that, that the basic tenets of the country, the basic worldview of the country, is that of, of Christian. I mean, we, that's why we have, like I said, those, those two particular holidays. And, and I could go on and on. But moving on to another point in Israel, they celebrate a 4,000-year-old supernatural event that called the Passover. They also celebrate it here. Jews celebrate it constantly all over the world when, when it falls. And that Passover simply is this, that the angel of death passed over the firstborn of Israel and killed the firstborn of the Egyptian, which finally loosened Pharaoh's um, stranglehold on that nation, and, and Pharaoh allowed them to, to leave. They also uh, they, they celebrate and, and, and discuss, uh, in, in, um, as, they, as they discuss the Torah and teach the Torah, they, they talk about the miracles of, let's say, the parting of the Red Sea. These are supernatural events that happen. And, of course, skeptics today and rationalists look at that and say, well, these people were very primitive and they didn't know and they were just making this stuff up. Um, I don't believe so. I'm a frank supernaturalist, and I believe that these things happened in real time. When it says that the wall stood up as on a heap on both sides, that's exactly what happened. Well, even Lynn, even many of our scientists now, even you know people who at one time were staunch, uh, a staunch Darwinist, uh, you can go to the, our regular scientific, um, you know, like Science Today, and you know what I'm saying, Bizorg.com, mm-hmm. and some of these other. Uh, websites that are completely secular, but they're running articles uh, almost ad nauseum now about the, about the problems with Darwinism and also, um, you know, the uh, ge- geological and other evidence that is insinuating that much of what was recorded in these ancient records, including the Old Testament Bible, um, that these things actually occurred probably in the same way that they were mentioned as having occurred, that this is, was not just... Um, the mythology of ancient Hebrews, that this was an actual record of history. Now, um, <clears throat> I want to stay on track. Speaking of how things, ancient things could relate to today, um, a minute ago you mentioned the genetic manipulation by fallen angels mm-hmm. uh, creating the Nephilim. H- how would that relate to today? Well, I believe that, um, and, and I, I got it, for the first book for the, for the Nephilim series, I interviewed a man who was working as a genetic scientist at Amgen. They're out here in California. It's one right. of the largest um, genetic research companies in the world. And, uh, you know, I sat down with this guy and had like three or four meetings with him, and he explained the whole DNA, uh, the way it worked, and all the different links and how they how it was so complex. And, and anyway, cut to the chase, um, I asked him specifically, I said, well, what kind of stuff are you guys doing? And I, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, I, at this point, I was a neophyte. I had no idea what geneticists were about. And he said, well, let me give you an example. Now, this is just a guy that's employed at Amgem. And, you know, he's not, he's not top secret or anything like that. He's just working with stuff. And he basically told me, well, and I said this innumerable times. I love this story. They took the gene from a firefly. They found, they isolated the gene from a firefly that causes a firefly to light up. All right? Fearfully and wonderfully made. They took that gene and they spliced it into the embryo of a frog. And, of course, what they get now is a, is a chimera, which is a frog that now lights up and glows in the dark. So they're, they're messing with the whole genome, but that's the kind of stuff that they're doing. They're, they're creating chimeras. And, and what, what's interesting about this, um, this, of course, in my opinion, hails back to some of the ancient texts, specifically the Book of Enoch or even Jubilees, which discuss this whole intermarriage between fallen angels and the women of Earth, and the byproduct being in the Nephilim. 
this uh, this superhuman demonic entity, which then was the reason for the flood. What we see in the abduction phenomena is the same type of same type of deal. It's different, but the end results I believe is 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 are very similar. And that end result, of course, I believe will be this this hybrid, this demonic or fallen angel, luciferic uh, human hybrid, which will pass as human, but of course won't be because it will have DNA from, from the fallen angels. And that's what we're looking at. And, of course, this is genetic manipulation. The other, the other things to think about is when the book of Revelation, when it, I read the passage this morning, when it discusses the abyss being open, the abuso in the Greek being open, and out of this comes Abaddon, or Apollo in the Greek, and followed by these, these scorpion-looking creatures with you know faces like men, hair like women, teeth like lions, and tails with skin like scorpions. And this whole, it, it's, not, it's not allegory. I don't believe it's allegory. I'm, again, I'm a literalist, and I look at this, and I believe that these creatures, whatever they are, are being created uh, genetically down there. There's some sort of a genetic manipulation, and when, and when they do, when they actually manifest themselves, they will look like John the Revelator saw. They'll look exactly like that. And well, I don't believe you can, they're not like helicopters or some modern invention. They are creatures that we've never seen before. Well, you know, and I can understand <clears throat> 25 years ago being young, being a young pastor, pastoring a church, and had guys like Hal Lindsey and other guys like that that were talking about uh, helicopters. But, but you know, we didn't have uh, we didn't have the ability to, to do genetic modification then, right? Like we do now. But right. now we have you know the Britain just recently uh, okayed uh, legalized the creation right. of correct. animal chimeras. What do, you, what do you make of the news that's out today and tomorrow that uh, scientists are poised now to create the first synthetic life in the laboratory? Well, I, I, you know, it was, it was on the Drudge Report uh, all over the weekend. You know, I've created life and all this other stuff. And I think, I think this is why, and, you know, for your listeners who, who don't hold, let's say, a Christian worldview, I realize that this, you know, they may shrug their shoulders and say, who cares? But I believe that this is, uh, these people will be able to mess with this stuff for a season, for a while, for a period of time. It's not going to go on forever because that's, it, it's just not the, what we're supposed to be. It's just not something that we're supposed to mess with. And I realize that you could say, well, people said that about the polio vaccine when Pastor did it and the church got up in arms. But we're not talking, you know, that, that's one thing. He took, he took a vaccine and he healed the disease. We're talking about creating monsters, really, is what we're doing. And, uh, you know, this whole cross fertilization or, or crossbreeding between species is just not supposed to happen. And I think well, we're playing... Uh, in areas that we have no right to play in. Well, I agree with you. I mean, I don't. I I think regardless of what your worldview, you you know, uh, whether you're Christian, you're a non-Christian, you're some other faith, you're no faith at all, you're an evolutionist. You, you have to look at this science as something that neither evolution nor creation allowed for, and and we're already finding out from genetically modified crops that when you start blending living organisms, they'll do things that, that can't be predicted. It, it literally could be, you know, a biological nightmare. But, 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 but in your mind, and and I think I know what you'll say, but it's the same thing in my mind. But in your mind, over and above the fact that you know you, you watch the movie Jurassic Park and you have mm -hmm. um, Ian Malcolm or whatever his name was, you right. know, he's being chased down that road by a giant Tyrannosaurus Rex, and he wants to know who in the heck thought this was a good idea. <laughs> and he, you know, and and he in that in that movie, you know, he's a scientist who subscribes to the chaos theory. But, uh, you know, uh, his whole point is that even if these things existed at one time millions of years ago, our current environment has adapted to a certain ecological balance, 
and that by reintroducing these species into the current environment, you might set in motion things that could be catastrophic. It could be a Pandora's box. And, and that point is made very quickly in there, but I've always thought back about that when I've, when I've also done shows on this subject and I'm, you know, I'm thinking about genetic modification, whatever, that it really doesn't matter what your worldview is. Everybody ought to be concerned about the blending of species and, and what that might mean. Now, of course, you know, there's, there's bishops of the Catholic Church now that said with regard to the creation of these blended species in Britain that if a woman participated in providing ovum and then if that woman decides that she wants to carry this chimera to term, she ought to be allowed to do so. So now, Lynn, I mean, we're, we're crossing over uh, uh, an ethical boundary here where the human race may have only been once before, and that was when the Watchers That's right. performed the kind of genetic modification That's you're right. talking about where they started blending species. And, but they did that for a reason. They did that to create a body into which they could leave their estate. I mean, do mm-hmm. you think now what we're seeing, Lynn, Lynn Marzulli, I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you think now <laughs> what we're seeing occurring in modern sciences, and you wrote about this in your, in your first books. People need to buy those novels, by the way. If they haven't read your novels, they've, they've, missed, they've missed the best. I mean, this is the, this is the bar-setting fiction out there. Uh, everything that I tried to, to uh, duplicate when I wrote the Arabon Gate, <laughs> and actually, you're really the, kind here, Tom. Huh? You're being very kind. Thank no, you, I'm not either. And everybody that's read it knows it. But the, but but Lynn, on a on a non-fictional level, I mean, do you think that 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 some of these sciences are we are we now reinstituting Watcher science? Again, I would I would look at it and I would say that there's there are forces behind this stuff that we don't know about. Do you think it's prophetic? Well, I think it's definitely prophetic. I mean, absolutely. And I think it, I think it falls right into um, some of the stuff that we see in Revelation. I think we're, we're crossing the threshold. I think that um, there's, an interesting, there's an interesting scripture that says that men will seek death and not be able to find it in those days. And, I, you know, we look at things like that, and, and we know that there's genetic modification. What if they discover, let's say, the aging gene? And they, or what if they're able to, to give us something or genetically modify us in, in some way that we would be able to heal ourselves of basically every disease? What if they're able to, to somehow figure out, you know, what, what the healing mechanism is? Because the body heals itself of all sorts of things. What if they're able to take that gene and modify it in some way from some other plant or animal or whatever? And, um, for instance, like a starfish grows a new limb. What if they're able to take some of some gene, some gene concoction, genetic concoction, and actually create a species of human that is able to heal itself? Um, so no matter what you do, you can't kill it type of thing. And that might, I mean, I'm not saying that's the fulfillment of that, but, I mean, it, and as a sci-fi writer, I mean, my imagination gets a little out there sometimes. But I, I think what we're looking at, uh, all bets are off, and, and you know, no... <laughs> Everything, the, everything in the kitchen sink is going to get thrown into the mix here. I think we're in for the, the, the most wild ride that mankind has ever seen. And some of it is just not really good. And that's, that's what we're looking at. So I, I agree. I think that we're kind of like a tip of the iceberg deal. And when this thing really starts to break, it's, you know, who knows what we're looking at. Well, and you know, Lynn, part of the whole transhumanist philosophy now is they, they see what's happening with genetic modification and so on. And, and, of course, transhumanism involves a whole lot more than just genetic modification of species. It's also uh, robotics and other kinds of technology mm-hmm. and nanotechnology and space exploration and, and, all, and all of that. And, 
and much of that are, are also issues which guys like you and I would buy into. I mean, anything that would, that would benefit, you know, like uh, robotic technology where you have a better wheelchair, it helps a person who can sure. walk. Sure. I mean, we, we're very much, you know, we're not neoludites. We're very much in support of things that uh, better the human condition as long as we're not talking about changing what it means to be a human. And there then we have a real bioethical um, issues that start arising, but you know, you make an interesting point about it, because one of the things that Aubrey de Grey and many of these guys are, are talking about right now that are that are some of the speakers for the transhumanist philosophy is the quest for eternal life, the quest to extend life, and and I had a thought the other day, you know, it's and, and you're a student of theology, so you know that over time there has been this great debate about what happens to a person when they die and mm-hmm. is hell eternal. And you have on one side of the camp, you have these people who say that when you die, and, you know, Gehenna was really just allegorical. When you die, you burn up. That's the end of it. So when the judgment's over, you're gone. Body, soul, spirit, you're gone forever. Mm-hmm. There are other people who say that, no, in, in this great judgment, uh, Gehenna may have been allegorical, but, but in this great judgment, that you know, there's evidence there that the Scripture talks about these people whose torment is rising up forever and ever. And then a thought went through my mind the other day. I thought, you know, what if, and I'm just, this is completely loose theology here. I'm not saying I support this idea. But, but this thought went through my mind the other day that said, what if both camps are right, that there are those who are regular humans who, uh, once experiencing uh, uh, death uh, and hell, are burned up and gone forever. But then there's these others that cross over this breach uh, who became transhumans, who became something different, became offspring of the Watchers, and they're incapable of dying. And so there's this torment that goes up forever and ever. Well, listen, Lynn, we're going to take a break okay, here. Okay, great. And um, when we come back from this uh, commercial, I want to ask you uh, a very important question because some of the other things uh, that you do in your new book would actually form a really nice series for the Live from Roswell show. For instance, you make a link not just between the fallen angels and the ongoing UFO phenomenon, but some of these other things like... Uh, this Holocaust Luciferic sacrifice. I mean, how astonishing is that? Mm-hmm. You talk about Fatima, Mothman. We want to talk about those things when we come back from this break. Looking forward to it, Tom. Welcome back to Live from Roswell with Guy Malone. Uh, If you're just now joining us, this, of course, is Tom Horn, the guest host, filling in for Guy, who has taken a week off. He'll be back this next Sunday. 
And we've been talking this evening with best-selling author L.A. Marzulli, Lynn Marzulli. Uh, when we went to the break, I wanted to ask him a, a particular question, but Lynn, before I get to that, tell us uh, again how people can get a hold of your books. A good place to get it, of course, is my website because you get it and you can, uh, I autograph each book that uh, we send out, and that's Spiral, like a spiral staircase, spiraloflife.com, spiraloflife.com. And uh, we, you can also sign up for a monthly newsletter, which is about 50 a month. You can cancel that subscription at any time, but most people <clears throat> don't. And I also take emails if you have questions, what have you. We'll try to answer questions. And uh, you also get two MP3 files, sometimes three MP3 files with that, <clears throat> where people will um, write in with questions. And instead of just writing answers to them, I actually go on, uh, and, you, and you'll get an audio file if you're me talk about the answers and hopefully the question and well, getting it solved. <laughs> and I appreciate you mentioning that about uh, people go to Spiral of Life and there they, if they want to, they can email you questions because uh, most of the people who listen to live from Roswell are capable in Powell Talk of using the online live chat. We mm -hmm. know that, we know that uh, this radio program and Guy Malone has listeners in the tens of thousands and quite often uh, they do, uh, during the live broadcast, they'll send in messages, and we want to apologize to those people tonight that neither my computer system nor your computer system... I'm on a Mac, and it doesn't, yeah, PalTalk yeah, doesn't work with Macs right was, now. Right. It, our systems are not uh, adaptable to the PalTalk, and so if people are typing in questions tonight, we're very uh, apologetic that we're not capable of seeing those questions, but you can still get those questions uh, to Lynn Marzulli by going to Spiral of Life. Uh, if you're there on the, if this, if you're listening to this broadcast live, we realize people will be listening to this later on in the archives. But if you're listening to it live, there's an advertisement tonight on the livefromroswell.com website right at the top there talking about politics, properties, and the supernatural. If you click on that, you'll find the advertisement for the new book. Uh, down there in the right-hand corner, it'll also say something like Proceed to Spiral of Life. And if you click on that, you'll go to Lynn's website where you can find out about his other best-selling books from Zondervan and uh, also information there about how you can subscribe or maybe even on that first ad, how you can subscribe to his newsletter and how you can get a hold of Lynn Marzulli. Send him your question directly uh, about anything that we're talking about tonight. Now, one of the things, Lynn, in Politics, Prophecy, and the Supernatural, which is a terrific book because it's nonfiction. Uh, the other books are great, too, that are fiction. Um, one of the things that you do here that's just um, exciting to me and I think would be very exciting to anybody listening to this program tonight is that you talk about an awful lot of stuff that fits very well with the live from Roswell uh, format. Um, let's go down some of these. One of the things you talk about, and this was a, just a, an eye-opening, uh, literally, um, how, how can I put this? I mean, just a 10-star idea. One of those things that makes you stop pause and consider when you wrote about how the Holocaust <clears throat> might have been a Luciferic sacrifice mm -hmm. that opened an interdimensional portal. I mean, tell people about this. I, I will. Um, it's interesting. There's a, there's a book called A Twisted Cross, and um, this is where I got the idea from it. Um, and the word Holocaust in the German means as, as, on a, as an offering as on a burnt altar. So the Nazis knew exactly what they were doing. This was, again, this was a very, very deliberate sacrifice <clears throat> to their would-be God Satan, because that's who it was. And um, <clears throat> what I believe is is that these these uh, 
satanic offerings, these luciferic offerings, these funeral pyres, um, over a period of time, opened something up. It was very deliberate. They knew what was going on. And what did they open up, and do we have any manifestation of that? And, of course, we actually do. We have what was called later on by the Allies uh, forces who flew over Germany during the closing days of the war. They are called Foo Fighters. Foo Fighters were balls of light that seemed to dance around planes. The Americans thought it was something, maybe a secret weapon from the Germans. The Germans thought that the Russians had them. The Russians thought that the, that the Allies had them, and around and around it went. Well, in fact, these things were mysterious, and, of course, it heralds it as the beginning of modern ufology, age of modern UFO age. I believe that the, that the Nazis actually created something. They opened a portal, and they were able to do this through this luciferic sacrifice, which was very deliberate. Again, they, when, they, when, they, when they chose the Jews, they chose what I believe are God's chosen people, literally. Now, people may want to argue that to the cows come home. The bottom line is Yeshua, Jesus, was Jewish. Um, all the apostles were Jewish. The the books written in the Bible are all written by Jews. And, of course, the prophecies that came to us, such as Ezekiel and Daniel and, and uh, the book of Revelation, are all written by Jews. So Jews, I would, <laughs> it's safe to say, at least from my worldview, that these are God's chosen people. And, of course, by wiping them off the face of the earth, this would forestall or essentially annihilate the chance of any prophecy happening. One of that prophecy would be Ezekiel 37, which basically states that uh, from the four corners of the earth I will gather you and reestablish in your homeland. And that's what we see happen in 1947-48 with the creation of the State of Israel directly after World War II. So out of the fires of the Holocaust was birthed the nation of Israel, which is kind of interesting. But at the same time, I believe it cracked open a porthole which allowed these fallen angels to begin to manifest on the planet again. And since then, um, the sightings of UFOs have gone through the roof. Uh, not only that, but directly after the portal was open, we all of a sudden we get the Roswell crash. David Flynn believes, as I do, that it was deliberate. This thing was not an accident. They deliberately crashed it so that, in fact, it would be found by uh, agencies of the government. Another interesting thing, another writer, um, Mike Heiser, discusses this in Operation Paperclip, that the, uh, certain Nazi adepts, certain uh, Nazis uh, were brought over to serve in both the CIA which was then just beginning, uh, actually changing over from the old OSI and becoming a new CIA, and, of course, some of our scientific programs. And so their dossiers were cleaned up, hence the name Operation Paperclip, and these Nazis, who may have been, not all, of course, but some of them certainly knew what was going on, and I believe were occult adepts. So we, we actually imported into this country this whole Luciferian, Luciferian agenda and I think some of that is manifesting in, in our country now, especially with the, uh, the um, uh, perhaps the secret bases. Flynn, and I know you, you, the article was actually posted on your website, RNN, you know, Raiders News Updates, fantastic article by David Flynn. I quote him in Politics, Prophecy, and the Supernatural. But Flynn postulates that taking the coordination from where the angels first touched down, which is uh, uh, written about in the Book of Enoch, that they touched down on Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon, interestingly enough, is actually divided now by three nations. It's, it's Jordan, Syria, and Israel. They all kind of touch it, and uh, a very hot bed, which I, I find just really interesting. But they apparently landed or touched down two of these fallen angels on Mount Hermon. Well, Flynn postulated and calculated and wrote a paper on it. I encourage people to go to his website, watcher.net, and there you will see 
if you find the article, what happens when you go to the other side of the globe, in other words, 180 degrees, uh, the opposite side of the globe from uh, Mount Hermon lies the town of Roswell, New Mexico, which is absolutely a mind-bending uh, series of events to really think about. And, and it, that's why Flynn, like myself, um, I think probably you do too, Tom, believe that uh, this, this event was uh, staged, that it was, it was calculated. It was the second or the third or fourth incursion of the Nephilim or the fallen angels actually manifesting on the earth. Well, as a matter of fact, you know, when he wrote that article, uh, Roswell, the year 2012, um, and, and what had happened at Roswell, New Mexico, um, that article was so astonishing that I actually had a mathematician look at it because I, I thought if what he's written here is correct, I mean, how in the world could such sacred geometry have been hidden from the world until now? Hmm. And uh, I, I, so I actually had it reviewed. Not only was it substantiated, but after it was substantiated, UFO magazine, Paranormal magazine, all these magazines actually public had to get permission from me because he had written it as written it as a world exclusive for Raiders News Network wow. website. Wow! And uh, we, and of course, we gave them permission, and I got a hold of David, and he gave him permission. It was actually published in these magazines, and I had. UFO magazine and all these people who were just astonished that nobody had ever seen this before. Flynn, by the way, uh, I'm going to be publishing a top secret book by David Flynn that's going to be coming out next year. I can't tell people about it now, but it's going to make the Da Vinci Code look like uh, Martin <laughs> Homer Simpson. And, and knowing what I know about David Flynn, it will. It'll just be an absolute mind blower. I can't uh, wait to read this, it. This is the most astonishing thing he's ever written, and it's absolutely top secret. Wow. But uh, but you were talking about Operation Paperclip. You know, that was one of the theories that's been held out about what happened in Roswell, too. And you also mentioned these Foo Fighters, you know, ufology and so on. It, it's interesting in your book, Politics, Prophecy, and the Supernatural, that you not only you, it's, you, 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 you cover an astonishing amount of material, and you do it in a scholarly way. The book's been endorsed by quite a few people, including Myers and other people who are best-selling authors. Um, but interestingly, in your book, Politics, Prophecy, and Supernatural, you also, when talking about ufology and that sort of thing, you bring up something that's coming up on its 90th anniversary, mm -hmm. and that was the Fatima apparitions. Um, why, in, in a book called Politics, Prophecy, and the Supernatural, um, why, do you, why do you give so much weight to something like Fatima? Well, the backstory, and I should just give you, give your readers or listeners rather, just a little bit of a backstory that, that if they don't know anything about Fatima, so they at least can travel in it, and maybe draw their own conclusions, or at least, you know, follow my conclusion. In 1917, uh, three children began to receive a series of apparitions. At first, they weren't sure who or where the apparitions were from. In fact, what they were, um, they were seeing this. This uh, it appeared to be a woman. It was very small, between three and four feet tall. Uh, apparently it had black eyes. It had a very short skirt, not a long skirt. It held some sort of a metallic ball in its hand. It did not move its mouth and uh, communicated with them telepathically. Um, they began to tell everyone uh, that they had seen something. And on the 13th, there's that number again, on the 13th of the month, this apparition uh, appeared to them over, over a period of time. And, of course, as this, they were the only people to see it, these three kids, no one else saw it until actually there was a fourth witness that came in much later who, I'll get to start, I may, be, may touch on that if we have time, but what, what really is, is cogent to, uh, to our 
But the point I'm trying to make is, is that the apparition eventually said, when the children asked who, you know, where do you come from, she pointed to the heavens and said, I come from heaven, I come from the stars. And the Catholic Church got into this thing, and it became uh, Mary. And but apparently, at least from my research, and I look, let me. Here's my caveat: I'm not trying to Catholic bash here, or right. or you know, say that you know that this is this is just some Catholic thing, or you know, whatever. I'm not trying to say that, but I'm saying it. I think there was definitely a rush to judgment, and certainly from the books that I read on it, and the witnesses, and some of the interesting things that have happened since then. I believe that there certainly was some sort of a a cover-up and a manipulation to take this event and dress it up in, in Catholic dogma and then, you know, pass it off to the masses. Well, the church, they were, within the church in the town of Fatima, Portugal, there were priests who were very skeptical and who actually went on the record believing that what they were looking at was some sort of a manifestation of a demonic. But um, they asked for a sign. They went to the children and said, go back to the lady, whoever she calls herself, and ask for a sign. And so the kids do this. They meet with the lady, this apparition, whatever it is, and uh, they say, you know, we need to see a sign. And this, uh, the apparition says, okay, come back on the 13th of October, and it's coming up here really soon, and, uh, you know, that there will be a sign. So the kids go back and they tell the authorities, they tell the bishops and, and, and the priests, whatever, the Catholic hierarchy, I'm not sure exactly who they told, but the Catholic hierarchy, and the word gets out, and the day of the event, October 13th, 1917, there are literally upwards of 70,000 people standing in a field in Fatima, Portugal, awaiting this event, this miracle which is going to take place, which is supposed to happen direct, uh, pr precisely at 12 o'clock, 12 seven, noon, seven, okay? 70,000 70, 70, people standing in a field. It's raining. There's a cross-section of humanity. There are photographers. There are newspaper men. There are clergy. There are skeptics. There are atheists. There are uh, Marxists. There are just every you know possible combination of young, old, and, and every everybody's pretty much represented in that 70,000 um, cross-section of humanity. And it's been raining all morning, and there's the pictures that I've been able to see are black and white. There's just a sea of umbrellas that just cover the area. Anyway, 12 o'clock comes and goes, and the apparition does not appear. So that, that to me is, you know, is kind of spurious. We, you know, if this is really who it says it's supposed to be, it, it can't keep an appointment. <laughs> I just find that unbelievable. So, I mean, I, that, that's, a, that's a red flag. But then it, it gets worse, in my opinion. Um, what happens after that, around 1 o'clock in the afternoon, the children go, here she comes. And, of course, they're the only ones who see it. And, it, and it, as always in all these other apparitions, this, it kind of falls from the sky. It's like an orb that they see. And then it settles over this oak tree where the children then kneel before it. By the way, there's nothing left of the oak tree. It was, you know, torn apart and sold and, you know, used for relics and all this other stuff. And, of course, there's a cathedral apparently there now where the uh, apparition site actually right. was. But In fact, they're spending, they're, they're actually yeah, they just allocating a, a great deal of money. Yeah, they spent, they're doing a, a big uh, revamp of it. But here's the deal. 70,000 people... Are, are standing there, and all of a sudden, it's been raining all morning, the clouds part, and they see the sun. Well, in front of the sun, and of course, this is debatable. This is where, this is where I go off, um, you know, I, I part company with Catholic dogma. But in front of the sun, there is apparently a disk. And the eyewitnesses that I have, I have researched, and there are literally, you know, scores of witnesses who look up and that have gone on the record back then that are, that are in the record, and you got to remember, in 1917, they have nothing in the lexicon for UFO or flying saucer. Those words would come later on in the century. So they're saying, they're calling it, we looked up and saw 
a dull silver disc. We looked up and saw a disc that was spinning. We looked up and saw a disc with, you know, a silvery edges. We looked up and saw a disc that wobbled, and on and on and on with this, 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 disc, and it's always kind of in front of the sun. And, of course, what happens next is this disc falls to Earth, begins to wobble, falls to Earth. People believe that the sun is falling. It's the end of the world. It's mass pandemonium. It kind of hovers over the, uh, over the people. It emits a yellow-ambered light. Uh, it then rises up and, and vanishes back through, the, back through the hole in the clouds, and the people are suddenly dry. This has been, of course, now they say it's a, it's a miracle of the sun, and, but I don't think that's what happened. I think it's a harbinger of the type of deception that we're going to be looking at in the very near future. And I think that this is a complete, utterly luciferic, 100% in my opinion. It's a luciferian manifestation. It is evil beyond evil. And the whole the reason why it's evil is because it deceives people into thinking that they're looking at something miraculous, that they're looking for something, um, you know, from heaven or whatever, and nothing could be further from the truth. This has nothing to do with the Mary or the Bible. In fact, uh, when, you, when you actually get into what some of the apparitions say and, and what, this, uh, you know, what, what, what Scripture says, they are di- directly opposed to each other. More than that, which is... But, so, you're not saying that Catholics are evil. No, I'm definitely not saying that. You're no, saying that, uh, I'm just saying that the dogma that surrounds Fatima is skewed. Who say that the official position is interpretive, and that even some of the Catholics themselves are uncertain of what actually happened there, and 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 also many ufologists look at this and they say that. You know, the description, if this happened today, we have... A right, if, we, if you and I were in the field, Tom, we'd go, oh, my gosh, a UFO. Right, we would right. not, whether you're a Catholic or not, you would right. not say this Make was no an difference. apparition right. of, the, of the Holy Mother. You'd say, I saw a UFO. Right. What's interesting is, is these, these people, Diarmada and and Cena, uh, uh, saw this, um, discovered, uh, I guess in the late 90s or early 90s, they actually discovered a fourth witness that had been overlooked. And uh, she went on the record, really interesting. She had never really moved out of the area. And, of course, she was an old woman at the time, and they, they interviewed her, and there, she was neglected. But and under the same tree, under the same tree that the three seers saw this apparition, uh, several days earlier she saw this blonde-haired right. little boy or little girl, wasn't sure what it was, long shoulder-length blonde hair. And the, this being communicated with her telepathically. Right. And said essentially the same thing that it, it, it asked the three children, come over and say a couple of Hail Marys. And so she didn't. She was frightened and she was scared and, and she went away. And it, it begs the question, you know, what are we really looking at here? What kind of supernatural uh, event that happened? What, what I find interesting is, uh, is, is Pope Benedict, who at one time, he's our current pope, at one time he was a staunch defender of Fatima. And, you know, he apparently read the third secret and, you know, staunchly defended Fatima, and this is this is the deal. Well, when they revealed the third secret, and I think it's 2000, yeah, right around right around 2000, um, a lot of people believe that it's not the third secret, number one. And now Benedict has now distanced himself right. from from the whole Fatima apparitions thing, saying, "Well, it was for another century, it was for another time. That time is gone." And I, you know, I've talked to some some priests about this and did some of my own research, and of course, I have no access to the Vatican, so this was stuff off the web. But I did find what I believe may be may be a smoking gun in the sense that that and here's what I propose that the Catholic Benedict is now an insider and he's he's 
because there, let me back up. There are no photographs of the miracle of the sun. There are photographs of every other part of the event. Right. But of the miracle of the sun itself, they don't exist. They're not there. Someone sent me this one photograph, and it, all it is is just a bunch of clouds in the sky. But, I mean, it's not, it's not the miracle of the sun. It's just the sun. They exist, but they're not allowed to be but seen. But you're not allowed to look at them. And the reason why I think Benedict is distanced himself is he realizes that what it was was, in fact, some sort of a extraterrestrial you know, UFO manifestation, which, of course, I believe is Luciferian. And it wasn't the Mary of the Bible. And so if he says it's this, he can't go on record and say, well, the reason why we're not, you know, running Fatim up the flagpole, the reason why we're distancing self, because he has distanced himself from it. There's no doubt about it. Now, I'm you not making actually, this stuff up. Now, you actually have some of the eyewitness quotes and stuff, though, in your book, right? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Fascinating stuff. Now, Fascinating Lynn, stuff. We, you know, we've got maybe 25 minutes, something like that, left in this show. Um, this month is Halloween. Oh, boy. Uh, you know, which already sees some of the spooky films in the theaters, right, right. Um, also being featured in local video stores. One of those films, obviously, is The Mothman Prophecy. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> interestingly enough, for people listening to this show tonight, you actually talk about The Mothman Prophecies in Politics, uh, Prophecy and the Supernatural. Why, why, did you <laughs> why did you choose to do that? Well, once again, the more I got into Mothman, I read a, I was I saw the movie, obviously, that that that, uh, that, that Kiel, uh, Ray Kiel's book, saw the movie that the Mothman Prophecy with uh, Richard Gere was based on, from, right from Kiel's book, but it's, it's a distortion. And then got into Jeff Wamsley, who's written two books uh, on the Mothman, and then began to discuss, and I discussed those, I discussed his research at length with him, probably uh, at least a dozen interviews with him on it. So I, I really felt like I knew the material and got into it. And uh, the, the more I studied it, the more I realized that perhaps what we were looking, at least from my worldview and, and my perspective, was that we were looking at a manifestation of a fallen angel in this town. Something had been cracked open. Uh, there was a blood curse on the land that happened uh, generations earlier when they killed a Indian chief who literally in his dying breath cursed the land. So there was a blood curse over the land. Something had been opened up, uh, possibly through occult activity, that uh, other people, such as uh, Blackwater Films, are doing a documentary on it now, Charlie McCracken, Travis Short, and uh, they've, they've, they've uh, delved into the fact or, or uncovered that there was perhaps in the area some sort of a coven or some sort of a satanic um, activity happening during a time. At any rate, this, this, this creature, whatever it was, began to manifest, and it terrified people. I mean, absolutely terrified people. And the witnesses who are alive today which saw this thing have never recanted their story. Uh, all of them wish they had never seen this thing, never encountered of it. There's not one person who ever walked away from seeing this this uh, apparition or whatever it was, this manifestation, I guess we'll call it, feeling good about it. People were terrified. Their lives were changed. Uh, most likely, or most of them forever, uh, a slow downhill uh, descent. Some of them were able to, you know, kind of get back together. But most people are just are shattered from it. There's one man who's, who's never gone on the record won't even talk about it. And this is like decades later. This happened in 66 and 67, 1967, Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And um, the backstory simply is this. There's these, the initial sighting is these two, two couples are out in a car, and they're tooling a place called the, uh, the TNT area. What's interesting about the TNT area is, is uh, the Army Corps of Engineers came in and built this thing in World War II. The same group of people also 
allegedly, according to Travis Short and Charlie McCracken, are responsible for building Area 51. So there's a, there's a very interesting link. Uh, apparently, this was like over a 100-acre base. Uh, people were driven to it in, in buses that were with the glasses dark, darkened, and, and, and there were homes in, in that area on the base, and it was very secretive, and it apparently was a munitions uh, dump, but other things may have happened there, and of course, after the war, the whole thing was shut down, so it was kind of a spooky place to begin with, and so these, this couple, are, they're out there for a cruise um, in, in the middle of the night, I don't know, 10 or 11 o'clock, what young couples do, just, you know, night riding around in a car, 1966-67, and uh, the women look over and they see this winged figure. I mean, that in itself must have been bizarre, and they're, they're just terrified. And according to them, it had approximately, it was over seven feet tall, had these very large wings that just instantly shot out of its back and up this creature rose and began to follow the car. Well, according to these four eyewitnesses, the car was in, ex in excess of 100 miles an hour as it went down straightaways to try to avoid the creature and, es and escape from it. And this thing flew over their car at speeds up over 100 miles an hour and basically chased them until they got into town and then the creature left. Uh, the women were treated at the hospital for shock. Uh, Jeff Wamsley has talked to nurses who actually treated these women and, and it, they weren't making it up. I mean, they saw something. The nurses who treated them knew what shock looked like and these, these people were genuinely scared. Uh, the men, uh, one of the men has never gone on the record, won't talk about it to anybody, uh, just kind of walked away from it. And of course, the press had a field day naming it Mothman because at the time the Batman Super and Superman comic books were out. And so some bozo reporter named this thing Mothman, and of course it's a misnomer, but it stuck. My research, and the reason why I bring it in, is because it, it shows that the supernatural is manifesting in real time on the Earth today. And it should be cause, uh, it should be a very sobering point, it should be cause for concern for us, because this is just one area that it's happened. And of course, I link this with crop circles and cattle mutilations and the right. alien abduction That's phenomenon. Right. It's just one more thing that, that it's happening. What's interestingly enough is, and I, I'm trying to interview this gentleman, I have not been able to do it yet, and I probably will soon. And that should be in my newsletter, hopefully in the next month or two. But there's an ex-missionary who was living at the time in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And he had been in uh, New Guinea for a period of eight years as a missionary. And this man was used to seeing supernatural manifestations. In fact, he had performed exorcisms in New Guinea. So he knew how to deal with the supernatural. He knew how to deal with, with the um, you know, satanic side of the supernatural, let's say. And so he goes home at, at night one night, one evening, and he, this is during a time, of course, when this mothman is now manifesting. He has a very, very uneasy feeling, according to his, his uh, testimony. And he said uh, he searched every room in his house, went down to his basement, went in the attic. I mean, looked everywhere. There was nothing in the house, but he still felt very uneasy. He and his wife had, a, had their dinner, went, retired for the evening, went to bed. Around 2.30 in the morning, he awakens, and this he found very strange because he was always a sound sleeper and slept straight through the night. And he looks out his window, and he sees the street light. At night, is very calm. There's nothing going on. And then he looks down at the, at the foot of his bed, and there, standing in front of his bed, is the seven-foot-plus mothman, wings folded and everything else. And he said he stared at the thing, was unable to move, was completely hypnotized, paralyzed with fear, and terrified. All right? Who wouldn't be? absolutely terrified with fear. This lasts about 30 seconds, 30 to 40 seconds, perhaps. 
he then kind of snaps out of it. Remember, this is a missionary. And he realizes his mind begins to race back in New Guinea, and he realizes that he's looking at something, something that's evil. And he begins to recite verses from Scripture. And I, this is what I want to find out. I want to call him and ask him what were the verses that he recited, if he can remember what they were. I got a hunch he, he can remember. And he said in his own words, it's like a slug, like a bullet going into this thing. In other words, when you shoot somebody, like the scene that I always remember seeing as a kid, I was 13 when Lee Harvey Oswald got shot. And it's, it's unlike the movies because you just, it, it's real. I mean, Oswald shot, and you see him just buckle over. And apparently that's what this apparition did. And it, to me, it's spiritual warfare 101. He's using, he's using the sword of the spirit, which, of course, is the word of God, which, of course, is the Bible. Now, I'm not making this stuff up, and I'm not trying to sound right, religious. I, I mean, this is, what, this is what the text says the ancient scripts from 2,000 years ago, plus this is what it says is, is, is our only offensive weapon is this, this word of God, and that, of course, is scripture. He uses this, and the apparition dissipates right in front of his eyes and leaves the room. So he's the only guy out of the hundreds of people who saw the Mothman who was able to have victory over it, at least in part. And I found that just, just incredible, and that's why there's a whole chapter about the Mothman and, and politics, prophecy, and the supernatural. Well, you know... <coughs> About the time that um, people, maybe two or three years ago, were starting to say that ufology was dead, huh. um, all of a sudden, I mean, unexplainable objects, phenomenon, it's 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 appearing everywhere. Right. Um, even physical manifestations, we don't have any explanation yet. Flying you know? humanoids. Well, so <clears throat> now, you know, we have these recent UFO sightings in the English Channel. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, would you have any thoughts about that? Absolutely. Um, a backstory for your audience who may not be familiar with that. A couple of months back, there was a mile-wide UFO sighted in, over the English Channel. It right. was sighted by two pilots in two different aircraft. And, you know, a mile-wide is just huge. I mean, that's, right. they estimated it as, a, as about a mile-wide. I mean, the thing is absolutely huge. And, again, it's, it, you know, the news, the, the news media is kind of crippled because if they actually give this that the, the, the story that it deserves, then they're admitting that, okay, we're not in control of our skies. There is something from outside our whatever, outside our universe anyway, which is visiting us, we're not alone, which would, which would really cause mass panic, which is why the governments of the world, for the most part, specifically our country, although Mexico and France recently, recently Mexico has admitted that they have something on, on their radar, um, you know, that, that they've shot with infrared film that, it's just not of this world. I mean, that's the Mexican government saying, we don't know what it is, but it's not one of ours, and we've never seen anything like it. But anyway, to get back on point here, yeah, I mean, this, once again, what we're seeing is the supernatural ramping up. We see more and more manifestations of it. It's not going away. They're becoming bolder, and it's because there's an event that's coming, which I believe is on the horizon, which is going to change everybody's worldview. It will be similar to the Fatima apparitions, which is why I link back to that, because when the mile-wide UFO sits over Los Angeles or New York or many different cities of the world, people's, people's worldviews are going to be changed radically overnight. And unless you know what you're looking at, you'll be deceived. You'll believe well, the lie. And, and, and the, thing you, you know, the thing you do in this book that is so amazing to me is you're dealing with real-world issues. You're mm-hmm. dealing with actual um, political uh, you know things that are developing around the world, and yet you lump things like UFOs, crop circles, alien abduction, Mothman prophecy, cattle mutilations, Fatima. 
you lump all the stuff together, um, and 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 you know, we started the show out talking about the supernatural connection to Iraq and United States policy, mm-hmm. and and in this book, you actually start out talking about um, a, a nuclear war trigger, um, and 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 what could potentially develop in the Middle East, and then right away, though, you start talking about how those things could actually trigger a supernatural, uh, almost like an explosion of supernatural phenomena mm-hmm. around the world. I mean, you, you, and in fact, in that book, you actually extrapolate a theory on what happens at the end of that war uh, and how it's connected to prophecy. You want to talk about that? Oh, I'd love to, Tom. Great question, by the way. Um, there's an ancient prophecy, ancient text, specifically found in the uh, prophet of Ezekiel. We're looking at about 2,500 years ago. Ezekiel 37, which we touched on in the first hour, which, which spoke about the regathering of Israel into its ancient homeland. And it says specifically, in the latter days, in the latter days, it uses that phrase, I will gather you from the four corners of the earth and reestablish you in your land. Well, Ezekiel 38 also speaks of in the latter days. And it talks about that in, in the latter days, this, there will be an invasion force which will come up against the land of unwalled villages. Of course, in the ancient world, there was no such thing as a land of unwalled villages. The first thing a, a people would do would build the highest, thickest, sturdiest walls you could possibly build to save your women, uh, keep your crops and your livestock, and, and allow the next generation to grow up. That's, that's how the ancient world lived. And, of course, with the invention of the airplane, all that became obsolete, and that's why we have a land of unwalled villages, i.e. Israel, today, Existing, In fact, in this country, it's the same thing. So Israel today is a land of unwalled villages. When a prophet saw this 2,500 years ago, he would have been absolutely astounded. If he had had a vision of this, he would have gone, this makes no sense to me, a land of unwalled villages. And he would have been seeing a panorama of modern Israel and would have described it exactly as he described it, a land of unwalled villages. But to his mind's eye and his mindset and his worldview at the time, that's, that's absurd. That's, that's suicide. There's no such thing as a land of unwalled villages. You can't do that. You're going to be, you know, the, the enemy's going to come in and take everything. So but getting back to the prophecy, uh, in Ezekiel 38, it speaks about in the latter days, in the end times, that this, this force of, uh, of combined states would come up against the land of unwalled villages. Interestingly enough, it speaks of Gog and Magog, and I believe that that refers to specifically the Caucasus, possibly Turkey, definitely Russia. We see that we mentioned in the first uh, hour that, that Putin and the, and the Ruskies are selling arms to the Iranians like crazy. Um, some of those have wound up in Syria. Uh, they could be chemical weapons. They certainly are, are dealing with their nuclear program. And the second, so the first, the first nation really mentioned, most biblical scholars believe it, it's, it's the state of Russia, okay? The second nation that was just mentioned is, guess what, Iran, although it's called Persia. But the modern nation of, of Iran had been called Persia for thousands of years ago. And this country expatriated uh, per- Iranians, referred to themselves as Persians. They don't say that we're Iranians. They say that we're Persians. So the country is, is alive and well just because the names change doesn't mean anything. And, of course, with our, with our good friend Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, that's, that's what we see. We see exactly this, that Ahmadinejad has threatened over and over and over again that, that he will that Israel will soon be destroyed, that it is a dry weather tree soon to be plucked up from the ground, that it should not even be a country, it should be wiped off the map, that they should move back to, uh, to Europe and let them found the country there. So the vitriol is rising. As of a couple of weeks ago, 
which I found this this I just found absolutely incredible. Tying in with the Ezekiel 3839 war is this other prophecy, which which may or may not um, tie into it. I kind of believe it it's in conjunction to it. Some biblical scholars differ. That's okay. But what it, what it specifically talks about is Damascus ceases to become a city. I'm speaking of Isaiah 17. Uh, Israel, in, several weeks ago, flew a sortie into the modern nation of Syria. Damascus is in the modern nation of Syria. It flew a sortie and, and wiped out one of two things, a nuclear cache, which shouldn't have been there, or chemical weapons, one of the two. No one's saying, I can't find out who James, James has reported that they believe um, it was probably a nuclear cache of weapons, possibly from North Korea, or nuclear material. Maybe not, but, but all that's cloudy. No one really knows what it was. So several weeks later, Israel tips its hand and says, uh, basically fires a salvo to the Syrians. And this I found just un, unprecedented and unbelievable. They've never come out and said anything like this before. And it, and it really ramps the whole thing up and ratchets it up, the tension up there. And basically they say this. If you use, the Israelis are saying it's the Syrians, Syria, if you use chemical weapons against us, we will annihilate you. Right. And why does, that, why does that just weigh heavy on me? Because that, that is a direct reference to what would they hit? They'd go right for Damascus. That's the capital. And if they, if they hit Damascus, they'd use their neutron bombs. They would annihilate Damascus. And, you know, you could, you could say that perhaps they're justified. I mean, if, if, if the Syrians think they're going to use chemical weapons to get away with it, the Israelis will respond. But, again, this, I believe, is a direct referral to the Ezekiel 38-39 prophecy, which talks about this war, and it happens at the end of days, in the latter days, in the end times, that this war happens, where this confederacy of nations come up against the land of unwalled villages. Another nation mentioned, I believe, is the Sudan. And, of course, that's where, you know, Darfur is right now, and we're seeing this whole uh, crazy Islamic insurgency, um, Muslim against Muslim, the Arab Muslims killing the, the African Muslims just because they're African. So, um, I mean, the, the vitriol over there, it's ramping up. Who knows where this thing is going to go? Interestingly enough, Jordan is not one of the, um, uh, the countries which goes up against the land of unwalled villages, nor is Egypt, which I find just fascinating. But um, these other countries will, and uh, when, when they do, Israel, I believe, responds with the only response that they can, because if they don't, they will be annihilated. They will respond with the neutron bomb. When they do that, this fulfills the prophecy written 2,500 years ago, and this, Tom, I believe, is the trigger. This, this, this event triggers the supernatural. Why? It's because the whole world is looking at this this unprecedented battle where nuclear weapons are really being used in more than one. It's not Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's in real time. We're looking at satellite photographs of this stuff. Everyone in the world is tuned in. The whole world is watching. Everyone's breath is collectively being held. Uh, the Arab world, the Muslim world, is, is off the charts. I mean, the whole, the whole planet is just like, I can't believe it's come to this, but it has. And what it will do is it will trigger the supernatural, which I believe is the coming great deception of the Luciferian endgame. And that will be essentially that, and here's, here's the alien lie, that E.T. created us, that they are our progenitors, that they gen genetically manipulated us from modern man, that they are responsible for the, all the miracles of the Bible, and in fact, all the world's religions they're responsible for. And this, of course, I believe is the great deception which is coming. 
and and, and, and we listen, Lynn. We've got about seven or eight minutes. Okay. Uh, that are left for this show, as far as I can determine. Um, this book, Politics, Prophecy, and the Supernatural, is so fascinating because you're you know you're dealing with current affairs. You are a scholar. Um, you're dealing with political um, uh, analysis, and yet uh, one of the things that Roswell has brought to the world's consideration is this idea of official disclosure and alien intelligence. That's right. And you combine all of these things in a way that is extraordinary. And yet when you read this book, it's not as if, you know, uh, you're reading a book that starts talking about one thing and then something else. There's an in, uh, there's this extraordinary uh, line that, that starts at the beginning of this book to the end of this book that ties all of these events together. Now, you're going to have to keep your answers really short. How, okay. would, how would a full alien disclosure, tomorrow the President of the United States walks out into the well of the United Nations and in full presence of the Assembly says we are in contact with extraterrestrial intelligence, how is this going to change the world? Well, every, everybody's worldview is instantly changed. Everybody has to rethink their decision. Or, or, or their uh, position, especially if, if these alien beings have holographic film of, let's say, the parting of the Red Sea. There's a guy I quote in my book, Barry, he's actually a uh, Presbyterian minister, Barry Downing Jr., and he believes that all the miracles of the Old and New Testament were created or direct, directed or responsible for is, is E.T., completely, completely manifested by E.T. That's what he actually believes. So uh, it, would, it would take nothing for these guys to tap into... You know our satellites. I mean, you know, it's it's just it's just television waves. It's just satellite waves. I mean, it's 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 not that big of a deal. And what if they start showing holographic film of this stuff? Where here's the Red Sea, and you realize that you're not looking at Cecil B. DeMille or you know anything like that, uh, or you know Spielberg. It, this is the real deal. You're looking at it, but you're looking at it from an aerial view. And sure enough, there are discs, and the discs are actually manipulating the water, and the people moving through the Red Sea. And people, people will believe that. People will, will believe in the deception. And did, that's did, what I think we're looking at. Did you say that a Presbyterian minister is attributing the miracles of the Bible to E.T. innovation? Correct. His name, is, his name is Barry Downing, Jr., and he believes that all the miracles, including the ascension of Jesus, Jesus walking on the water, uh, rising from the dead, all E.T. direct uh, intervention. Listen, listen, people, um, there's, you know, people, all kinds of people listen to this show. Um, what should people believe? I mean, you know, this Presbyterian minister saying <laughs> that the miracles of the Bible were, I mean, tell me how people listening to this show um, could have hope. You, you mentioned, like, some kind of a great deception. Mm-hmm. Um, what should people believe? In your opinion, not everybody listening to this show is going to agree with you. Of course but not. Many, I understand that. But many might. Um, and I don't want to leave this show like on a, you know, uh, with a with a giant unanswered question. Right. The, here's the deal, Lynn. You, I think you're a true researcher. You dig deeper than most people do. Uh, people are going to find so much in this new book, Politics, Prophecy, and the Supernatural, that they're going to have to read it a half dozen times, like I did. 
and many of them are going to be compelled to want to email you. I mean, I suppose you're going to answer their email if they email you. Yeah, and, and, and the deal is if they email me questions, don't give me a diatribe. Keep your questions very pithy and very short. I get, I get way too much email, and I, I don't have time to sit and read for right. 10 or 15 minutes. So if you keep it to, like, you know, two or three lines, just get to your point, nail your question down, and then I'll, I'll answer it. But if it's, if it's like the, the, the ones I get, the email from, from people that are like two or three pages, I just I, I look at maybe the first couple of lines, try to see what they're saying, write them back and say, you've got to rewrite it and, and write right. it very short and pithy. Uh, oh, I understand that. I, I mean, I want to You're in the same boat. And with all respect to people who take time to do that, but when they, they want to send you their opinion and it's like they've written a book, you... Yeah, you know, you receive hundreds of emails per day. You simply don't have time Can't to read. Can't time and, to do and it. It's impossible. Make, and they might even make valuable points, but you don't have time to read. Right. Other Correct. Pages. Um, you know, but I, but I think when people read this book, they are going to be compelled to email you because, uh, frankly, um, Lynn, you've made you've made observations in this book that I'm not sure have ever been made before, and you've tied things together in a way that answer a lot of questions, but at the same time, they're so extraordinary that I think people are going to have uh, new questions that are going to rise, and they're going to say, oh my gosh, I mean, this, <laughs> you know, uh, how, how did you arrive at these conclusions? Because if you're, if, because if you're right, we're, we're talking about uh, extraordinary ramifications. Uh, for the world, Correct. And yet and yet, a lot of it seems to make a lot of sense. Tell us again, uh, quickly, Lynn, how can people buy your books? You can go to uh, my website, Spiral, like a spiral staircase, spiraloflife.com, spiraloflife.com. Um, it's also available on your website, Tom, Raiders News Update. There's a, there's a link there that you can buy right from uh, Tom's store. You can also get it on Amazon. But the lowest price is my website, and it's also autographed in there. You can also sign up on my website for the monthly newsletter and um, get these little monthly updates and articles that I write and all sorts of other goodies. Okay. Well, they can get the book anywhere. Ask for it at the local bookstore. That's correct. Uh, just go into your local Barnes & Noble, whatever, and ask for it. But they can get an autographed copy directly from you. That's probably the best. They're going to get the best price directly from you. And you mentioned something earlier that if they buy the book directly from you, they're going to get this free publication. Yes, they will. If, if they buy it from me, they'll get the um, they'll get a, a copy of the whether they sign up for the newsletter or not. They get a uh, um, a copy of the newsletter. Well, we're you know we're living at a time when things beyond human comprehension are accelerating around the world. And Lynn, people like you, in my opinion, are one of a small band of scholars um, that scores of people, I think could very soon be turning to uh, for seeing those things that are coming upon the earth. Hmm. And, um, you know, I, I've often thought about this, that especially as it regards people of any kind of faith, there's only just a very small group of people. I mean, how many is it? Ten, twelve people? That's about that, it. That, that are actually out there right now. Guy Malone is one of those guys. That's right, he is. Live from Roswell. Try who, who, you know, he, he's an experiencer who also is a man of faith. And he's talking about these issues, and you're talking about these issues, but it's such a very small group of people. And if suddenly tomorrow, all of a sudden we are, are faced with an extraordinary revelation 
that the Earth has been in contact for, for some time now with intelligence that's beyond our comprehension. Um, people, many people, especially people of faith, are going to be seeking answers. And I, I would put you among the handful, the 10 or 12, that are out there that is, that is a person who has dedicated his life to trying to understand this absolutely almost incomprehensible fact that from the dawn of time the earth has been being contacted by super intelligences who for their own reasons are involving themselves uh, with the human race and yet these these wonderful ancient texts especially the bible to me are just fascinating in that the revelation has been there from the beginning hasn't it absolutely uh, every answer so well then it was so good to have you on with us. Tom, tonight. it was really great, and thank you, Guy, for letting us uh, do this tonight. It was really fun. Yeah, thank you to Guy Malone and uh, to everybody out there listening to live from Roswell tonight. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight. We do apologize once again that we did not have access to the um, live chat room, so we didn't have your answers, uh, your questions. If you have ans- if you have questions, uh, please feel free to contact me directly at RaidersNewsUpdate at gmail.com or click on the banner that is there on the top of livefromroswell.com and go to Lynn Marzulli's website, look at his books, buy his books. You need to buy his books. If you have any questions, contact him directly. And uh, this next week, Guy Malone will be back to take you into this wonderful Live from Roswell world of the weird, of the weird and miraculous and everything else. Good night, folks. Thanks, Tom. Good night.